Welcome to this podcast produced here at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's, and I'm delighted to be joined today for this In Conversation podcast by Edna Longley, Professor Emerita at Queen's University. Edna Longley grew up in Dublin, took a degree in English and Latin at Trinity College Dublin, moved to Belfast in 1963 and taught in the School of English at Queen's University here in Belfast for 39 years, becoming Professor Emerita in 2002. She has written extensively on modern poetry and on Irish cultural politics, her influential books including Louis McNeese, A Study, published in 1988, The Living Stream, Literature and Revisionism in Ireland, published in 1994, Poetry and Posterity, published in 2000, and Yeats and Modern Poetry from 2013. A member of the Royal Irish Academy, a Fellow of the British Academy, and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Professor Longley's most recent book is Under the Same Moon, Edward Thomas and the English Lyric, published in 2017. She's currently editing a volume of Edward Thomas's poetry criticism for the Oxford University Press edition of his selected prose. Edna, I'd like to start today with Louis McNeese, on whom you've written very powerfully indeed. You comment in your 1988 study that I mentioned that McNeese's Irishness and his poetry are, quote, the product of pulls in contrary directions, which might, you say, be a description of Ulster itself. Could you expand on that for us, please? I think I was quoting then from McNeese's poem, Carrick Revisited, which is about a return to Carrickfergus, where he'd grown up. This visit was just after the Second World War. Some lines in that poem are, Torn before birth from where my father's dwelt, schooled from the age of ten to a foreign voice. Yet neither Western Ireland nor Southern England cancels this interlude. And there, McNeese is referring to the fact that his parents came from the west of Ireland and that his own education, indeed his working life, was mostly in England. Yet those horizons, he says, don't cancel what we might see as the related contraries um, of his formative childhood experience in Ulster when he seems to have absorbed into his psyche, into his unconscious, the tensions and images of this place. The complexity of his absorption, I think, provided a a very important foundation for McNeese's poetry. He's a poet who always emphasizes the significance of a poet's childhood. And hence, his poetry's influence on poets who have come after him from this part of the world. In fact, McNeese's cultural and political representations of Northern Ireland are still remarkably fresh, um, which explains his 
particular influence on poems written during the Troubles. There's also his celebrated long poem, Autumn Journal, which he wrote during the Munich crisis on the, the brink of the Second World War, a poem that shows how you can bring together the personal and the political in poetry. And I think Autumn Journal does so in ways which influenced our own civil war poetry, as I would call it. Autumn Journal is still influencing poetry here. Um, I think poetry such as Leontia Flynn's retrospects on recent history in her collection, The Radio. Leontia said once that McNeese showed whatever the times as a way of writing about them, whatever the times as a way of writing about them. But McNeese isn't only a model for how to connect the personal and the political, the public and the private. He's a very remarkable poet whose forms and structures are influential too, not only here. He was also the poet of his generation, um, McNeese was born in 1907, who mediated Yeats in ways that other Irish poets of that time didn't. And so, in some ways, he's been a conduit of Yeats and Yeats's poetry to later poets from the North. Um, and so I think, overall, they picked up an awful lot from McNeese's radar. And just one further thing I'd like to say. Um, one of McNeese's most famous poems is Snow, um, a poem in which he uses the phrase incorrigibly plural, uh, a phrase that rather follows McNeese around. That sense of plurality and fluidity in McNeese's poetry can be seen as a psychic reaction against some of the constrictions of his background here and against his clergyman father. Um, Snow itself has been a much rewritten poem. Other poets have had a go at the same material. I once wrote an essay about MacNeese's influence called The Room Where MacNeese Wrote Snow. And that room was a very various and plural and fluid space. Uh, which made all kinds of room for other Irish, Northern Irish poets. Quite recently, uh, Gail McConnell um, yet again updated Snow 
in a poem about the birth of her son. Uh, Magnesia's poem, Snow, begins, The room was suddenly rich. And Gail's poem begins, The room was suddenly you, which I think is lovely. McNeese was an extraordinary Irish poet born in Ulster, and the list of extraordinary modern Irish poets born in Ulster is itself, of course, remarkable, including Karen Carson, Seamus Heaney, Michael Longley, Paul Muldoon, but also numerous other stellar figures. I've got a couple of questions here. One is that Queen's University Belfast, uh, where you work for such a long time with such distinction, Queen's played a part in the life of numerous of these writers. Could you comment on that, the role of Queen's in relation to those Ulster-born Irish poets? I think the role of Queen's has developed and evolved since the 1960s, when Queen's, or the area around it, the, the ethos, began to be a poetry hub. Um, one fundamental thing to remember is that Queen's in the 1950s and 60s was the first place where would-be poets, would-be writers in the North from different backgrounds actually met since schools were even more segregated then. So when they met at Queen's, they brought their diverse cultural hinterlands uh, together uh, to that encounter. I think that's one factor. And I also believe that when talent comes together, the coincidence of talent, um, it forms a coterie. And coterie, in a good sense, is very often the nursery of poetry. Um, I've seen this happen again and again. Young poets meet, there's exchange, competition, a learning from each other, a multiplication of poetic possibilities. And I, I do think that at Queen's, or, or that small area, became a little like the small Dublin of the Irish literary revival. There's a book about Northern Irish poetry called The Ulster Renaissance, and I don't think that's an exaggeration where poetry is concerned. But I must emphasise in this context that what we might term in quotation marks Northern Irish poetry, uh, maybe with a small n, didn't begin with the fabled Philip Hobsbawm group in the mid-1960s. It had a prehistory at Trinity College Dublin, where Michael Longley and Derek Mahon met, and where they served their, their poetic apprenticeships together in relation to the literary magazine Icarus. 
um, a magazine with which I was also involved as a critic. But then, when I came to Queen's and Belfast, Philip Hobsbawm, who was on the staff of the English department, found out that I had a relationship with Michael. And in autumn 1964, we were both invited to take part in his group. Michael and Seamus Heaney met at the group, and that was very important for Michael and for Seamus too, I think. I also rather cut my teeth as a critic at the group. I had I'd reviewed poetry in Dublin, but Philip was a very ferocious person, and I mostly disagreed with him about poetry. So I think I learned something from arguing at the group. Um, it was also good, more generally, that the group emphasized criticism, the close reading of poetry, detailed discussion of it. Um, I think criticism and poetry, I suppose I'm married to Michael, so I would think this, uh, criticism and poetry go hand in hand. Poets have their own critical faculties, but they sometimes need critics too. Um, since those early days, as you've said, poetry seems to have gone on mattering around here, with successive generations of poets appearing, um, Paul Muldoon, Kieran Carson, Maeve McGookian, Frank Ormsby, all Queen's students. And again, it's a question of form, of structure, of aesthetics, as well as content. I think there's been a very important Northern Irish contribution to the aesthetics of modern poetry in English, um, not only as recognised by Heaney's Nobel Prize, and sometimes uh, an emphasis on the troubles or on, on the content of the poetry can get in the way of that aesthetic achievement being fully understood. I said that after those early days that there was an evolution. Poetry certainly remained important here, um, perhaps becoming even more important during the Troubles. Um, and at that time, I was involved with organising the English Society at Queen's. There were readings and visiting poets from many quarters. The local poets would always come to those readings and there would be interchange. John Hewitt, very much the elder statesman of Northern Irish poetry, would also come. And then, of course, in the 1990s, there was Seamus winning the Nobel Prize, and the role of Queen's uh, began to shift again. Uh, 
When Seamus won the prize, the then head of the School of English asked, as heads of school do, what's in it for us? Um, Seamus, of course, had both studied and taught English at Queen's. And I thought, rather than a statue or a plaque, that establishing a poetry centre would be a good idea, that it would guarantee the institutional perpetuation of what Seamus cared about. And so the Seamus Heaney Centre for Poetry was eventually established with his approval um, when the university got funding and then Kieran Carson um, became the first professor of poetry, which was tremendous. Today, I suppose that writing poetry, creative writing, um, is on the university curriculum. There's an MA in poetry, which involves criticism as well as creativity. There are poets on the teaching staff, Leon Flynn, Stephen Sexton, previously Sinead Morrissey, and that's another phase in the evolution. And there's also a very lively scene of younger poets and student poets, and that's exciting. There's the lifeboat readings and pamphlets. Um, but I do have one caveat um, in thinking about poetry and queens. I, I would always want poetry to retain a kind of samizdat status. Uh, I think something about it should ultimately elude universities and university managers. Yeah, you, you mentioned that younger generation of Northern Origin poets, and you've, you've alluded to Leontia Flynn and Gail McConnell and Stephen Sexton. Uh, you're suggesting there, Edna, that you think that there's a tremendous vibrancy in that evolved tradition now. Uh, it sounds like a very encouraging condition. Could you say something about your, your, your view of that more broadly? Um, I've, I've got a, a quotation here since I knew I was going to be asked about that. Um, a, a quotation from the introduction to an anthology, New Poets from the North of Ireland, um, which Sinead Morrissey and Stephen Connolly edited in 2016. And in a way, this sums up what you've been asking about. Um, Morrissey and Connolly say, a pre-existing place-specific poetry canon with which we all remain in conversation and the education provided by a dynamic poetry culture, arguably unrivaled in these islands, are hugely important in challenging and sustaining succeeding generations of poets. The Seamus Heaney Centre for Poetry at Queen's University Belfast, founded in 2003, has also played a decisive role in fostering new talent. Now, obviously, such a conversation covers all poets from Northern Ireland, 
wherever they may live now, and whatever their other poetic affiliations. I think the young are in conversation with the older poets, and indeed, as I know from my own husband, the older poets are in conversation with the young, and that's how poetic tradition works. The American poet Donald Hall once said he thought of his writing poetry as quote, a conversation with the dead great ones and with the living young. And in some ways, it's perhaps easier for generations of poets to converse and exchange poems and so on. Novelists can't quite work in the same way uh, over a pub table or whatever. I think that sort of awareness continues around Queen's. Um, Stephen Sexton published a remarkable and much applauded first collection recently, If All the World and Love Were Young. And I noticed that he partly dedicates it to quote, Il Professore, Il Maestro, Kieran Carson, to whom I am indebted and to whom language itself is indebted. I think it's just that sense of precursors and successors that has kept the show on the road with all its twists and turns, its aesthetic shifts and experiments. And there's Stephen's book, Leontius books, and more recently, Gail McConnell and Pordrick Regan. I'm very interested in everything that they're all doing. Thank you. In your 1994 book of essays, The Living Stream, you suggest that Northern Irish poetry sometimes echoes, more often revises, philosophies of history articulated by historians and politicians. Is that, in your view, still the case? I do think that poetry has its finger on the pulse of history in ways that aren't always apparent until much later. Paul Muldoon once said that if you want to know about Northern Ireland, rather than reading all the accumulated works of historians and political scientists, I'm sorry, Richard, um, you'd be far better off reading the poetry and would learn more. I think poetry has its own way and structural ways of thinking about history. Um, incidentally, I noticed that during the 1916 commemorations in Dublin, probably the most quoted text was Yeats's Easter 1916, a poem that still has its finger on the pulse of history. And again, as regards commemorations of the Great War, I notice that some historians are still trying to get Wilfred Owen out of public consciousness. Um, one way in which I think poetry from here 
has in a sense explored history or represented history is through elegy. I mentioned the example of McNeese connecting the public with the, the private or the, the personal. Um, in elegizing victims of the troubles, poets have juxtaposed their lives as citizens um, with the, the conflict, the, the oppositions that have caused their deaths. I think that's a very complex way of representing history of both protesting and recording and possibly once again some of those elegies will outlast the historical and political commentaries. Um, I think also that poets may be representing history in new ways now um, I would also recommend that earlier po poems concerning events here should be reread, because a good poem uh, doesn't exhaust its meaning with its occasion. Like Yeats's Easter 1916, it goes on meaning and taking on new meaning. But I've noticed in more recent poems there's a sense of how the troubles still underlie the surfaces of normal life here. I think it's there as post-traumatic stress in the poetry, as probably in the society. And in poetry, there's also a critique of other ways in which the past is being packaged or not being dealt with, um, a critique of the language of legacy in various quarters. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Gail O'Connell's poem Typeface, which represents her researching the killing of her prison officer father and of as questioning other ways of remembering a victim such as her father was um, by the historical inquiries team or whatever. So I think that poetry is still doing that work of, of registering history as it happens or as we process it. Some poets, some younger poets, are also very clearly writing as children of the troubles in their poems, and I think that's an important set of perspectives. Thank you indeed. You mentioned there, Edna, legacy and the packaging of the past and commemorating. Uh, in The Living Stream, that collection of essays from the 90s, you suggest that, quote, commemorations are as selective as sympathies. We're in the decade uh, of centenaries in Ireland. We're in the centenary this year of the emergence of Northern Ireland. Uh, your reflections on that culture of commemoration and the intersection of literary criticism and poetry with it? 
I think I might be interested in commemoration, partly because poetry is so bound up with memory. The the very origins of poetry are mnemonic. The forms, the rhythms, the sounds of poetry, these are all memorial techniques. To me, the test of a poem is always whether it's memorable. Um, um, if it's going to stay in my mind, um, Auden called poetry memorable speech. And as I've been implying, I think poems are more likely to be remembered than other kinds of reporting or commemoration. Though I did actually once write somewhere that perhaps in Northern Ireland we should erect a statue to amnesia and forget where we put it. Clearly, today, the this year, the Northern Ireland 100 commemoration is upon us with obvious public difficulties. Michael D. Higgins had an article in The Guardian recently in which he talked about ethical remembering, ethical remembering. He was, in fact, stressing Britain's occupation to reflect more on the legacy of empire um, in, in Ireland and elsewhere. And I suppose he was quite rightly holding up the very mature way in which the 1916 um, commemoration was handled in the Republic uh, throughout 2016 with a lot of involvement from historians and um, with pluralistic perspectives and so on. And I think that was indeed a triumph. On the other hand, the, the Republic is a settled state, so that was possible in ways that commemorating the foundation of Northern Ireland is simply not possible. And the Republic will certainly have more difficulty next year in commemorating the post-Treaty Civil War. But as we know, Northern Ireland is still a contested place. Um, Sinn Féin and the SDLP have already opted out of any commemoration. In fact, that may be a pity, a missed, a missed chance for that ever-deferred discussion of a shared future. But I think the foundation of Stormont and everything that followed from it, the violence that followed from it, is probably not a good place from which to start on that um, or on ethical remembering. Though maybe that should happen sooner rather than later. One thing that has drawn my attention as regards this centenary is the um, Seamus Heaney controversy. Uh, where poetry got itself involved in the branding of Northern Ireland's Northern Ireland 100. 
was the odd couple of Seamus Heaney and Mary Peters. That seemed very strange. And incidentally, no Northern Ireland Unionist political party was represented at Seamus's funeral in 2013. So it's extraordinary cheek that his image should have been co-opted in that particular way. Um, that said, I don't think Seamus's work or, or any poet's work can or should be fitted into any kind of national frame. Literature in Ireland from the days of Yeats has always ultimately seen itself as being in opposition to the various uh, regimes that have been in power, and I think that continues. I do have one suggestion for how Northern Ireland's centenary might be marked. Um, a reading of poems from the last hundred years uh, in, in line with Paul Muldoon's thinking uh, a massive poetry reading could cover a lot. Absolutely. Edna, looking back at your career, Edna, what would you say was the most significant change to have occurred in the academic study of poetry, if you had to pick one? And would you identify it as being a, a welcome or unwelcome development or a mixture of the two? One thing I'd say about the academic study of poetry is that there's less of it than there used to be, and that's a major factor. The main reason I was involved in conceiving the Seamus Heaney Centre for Poetry was because in the early 90s I'd grown worried that poetry was becoming marginalised in English departments as as literary theory and cultural studies took over. So I wanted to be sure that poetry had a statutory place in the university, and that's why I thought there should be a centre for poetry, a professor of poetry, and I still feel that very strongly. Um, my chief worry now, though, um, is that both inside and outside the university, it's become harder for poetry critics um, actually to be critical. And that's because poetry has got very mixed up with identity politics, um, more so than other literary modes. Perhaps this is because people, or some people, think that poetry is a more personal expression than other kinds of writing, that poetry is a kind of selfie. And this is, of course, a fallacy. A poem is an artistic object. It's thrown free of its author. 
But there can be a feeling that if you make any negative criticism of a particular poem or poet, that it mightn't be on the grounds of value. It, it, it might be construed as some kind of insult to their gender, their sexuality, their ethnic identity. And that really is a difficulty. Um, for instance, 20 years ago, uh, I edited the Blood Axe book of 20th century poetry from Britain and Ireland. I'm not so sure that I could edit another such anthology, an anthology of 21st century poetry. I know that if I did, the number of women poets, for instance, would be very intensively scrutinised. I couldn't just include poems I like. Um, I think that's the current problem, the current minefield for poetry critics and helps to make them a dwindling band. Of course, not everybody submits to that pressure, but it is something in the air. Um, I call it poetical correctness. Edna, as always, when I listen to you, I'm struck by the extraordinarily rich and powerful set of reflections, ideas and arguments that you propound. I've learned an enormous amount from what you've said. I know that other people listening to this will do also. So in closing this podcast, very profound thanks to Edna Longley.